Hey everyone, my name is Nick. And my name is Kat. Thanks for tuning in to Made for You and Me. This is our second full episode, and it will be part two of our first episode for the creation of the National Parks Service. I'm going to turn my computer on mute now so <laughs> everyone doesn't have to hear my updates. Yeah. That's super popular. So she's, it's 6.14 p.m. and she's still getting emails. Boop, boop. Really important woman. Um, cool. Well, it's Tuesday for us. Uh, Kat, how was your weekend? My weekend was actually really good, honestly, especially like pandemic-wise. And uh, I borrowed your your car yesterday and got a new desk i'm really excited about that how was your weekend um it was mostly really good uh i went camping it was my best friend's birthday and we went camping on the beach for her birthday and um you know i i I realized that i'm quite a diva when it comes to my sleeping situation and i'm totally okay with that so like the it was like it was like a whole day and um her husband's family has a boat so we used that to get like tuned from the island and uh it was it was like a really solid beach day with lots of really cool people but um i am not an avid or experienced camper (laughs) and like i i even had to borrow a tent um and even though i'm in reality in my 20s i have the back of a 57 year old So I was just really concerned. I, I, I slept really, really poorly. And sleeping on the sand, I didn't have a, a, a cushion. Why uh, didn't you sleep on the boat that took you over to the <laughs> island? Uh, it wasn't like a yacht or anything. It was it was a cute little boat. But I, I really thought about it. Like I was up in the middle of the night Googling like DIY camping cushion and like thought about going to the boat. But anyway... So we'll get a camper when we go on our cross-country national parks. From here on out, like, the actual (laughs) camping experience was fun, but the sleeping situation, I was just very underprepared for. Um, But I had a great weekend. Thanks for asking. (laughs) All right. We've gotten through that part. Now let's talk about national parks. Um, I'm really stoked to get into this today. Um, I've been really looking forward to this all week and weekend. Uh, and I don't know if that just speaks to how big of a dweeb I am or maybe how boring I am, but uh, I'm, I'm really jazzed to be here. Well, I mean, I must be a dweeb too, because I'm really excited as well. I mean, we're doing this like after work. So mm-hmm. for us to have this much energy post, you know, um, state jobs, <laughs> we must be excited. Yeah, we, I'm, I mean, we're pretty dedicated. I'm proud of <laughs> us for that. So our first episode, I think for two folks who are inexperienced with doing a podcast, I would give us like a solid A minus okay. for that first episode. I mean, we stopped to work out some kinks with like my microphone and not sounding like I'm seven feet away and maybe a lot of our ums and editing and, and all that good stuff. But I think that I'm, I think like we've, we've got it going. I, I think we're going to just get better as time goes on. That's exactly. for sure. I change my voice a lot. Like... I get really country sometimes, and like other times, I I'm trying not to be, but um, yeah, that's what I noticed in the what ten minutes that I listened. To. Well, we'll just keep them guessing. <laughs> we don't know what Kat's gonna say or how she's gonna sound next. <laughs> that's uh, true. But thanks everyone for bearing with us as we uh, find our voice and figure out how to be great podcast hosts. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, yeah. we hope that we can do right by you. All right. Cool. So we left off with. Um, Yosemite. Yeah. Uh, 
We, in our last episode, ended around 1864 when Yosemite was created as the first geographic area that was placed under uh, protection. And it wasn't officially um, a state park. It definitely wasn't a national park, but it was owned by the state of California, um, but didn't really have like a name. It was just this area that was uh, protected and set to be set aside. Um, John Muir was tweeting about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was a little like <laughs> ambiguous about what exactly who who was supposed to maintain this land and and be in the land protecting it and uh, advertising it and promoting it and overseeing it. But we had it. It wasn't going anywhere. And um, that just created uh, a lot more momentum for all these other folks and and important figures who we're going to talk about even more today um, to really keep the ball rolling for uh, even more national parks. Yeah, and I think I think the story kind of speeds up from here, which is yeah, definitely nice for our listeners. Yeah, um, but also you know it it speeds up a, a lot when you think about it over the past hundred plus years and how many we've added and things like that, but I won't get too far ahead of myself. No, that's fine. (laughs) Um, So Yosemite was at the heart of America's national park movement, Um, even though it wasn't the first national park, just the amazement of this incredible valley in California just inspired some of its earliest visitors to demand protection. So uh, settlers continued to move westward, quote unquote, civilizing the West, Mm -hmm. Um, but also displacing native peoples but people like john muir communicated the awesomeness of yosemite and the nearby areas like the sequoia forest to people who had never seen them uh, and his widely published writings stressed how nature was necessary for the soul like we talked about in our first episode uh, and his advocacy became a driving force behind the creation of several national parks even before the official national park service was made um so i feel like in talking about the genesis of the national park service kat and i have given you a lot of information about yosemite (laughs) um but that's just really how it all began don't worry you you will get your dedicated set aside episode on yosemite and all the awesomeness that there is um, we'll still have that episode, but it just so happens that that's where a lot of it went down. Well, and so before this, we were also talking about, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting characters that come with Yosemite, which we talked mm-hmm. about last week. But um, over the past week, I was looking at Instagram and I found a um, an Instagram, I guess, influencer that was talking about this and how it's like, yeah, who who actually is um, founded this and who created this? And she was confused as well. So I think that's why it also took us a while to get through Yosemite. But mm-hmm. so we're fast we're fast forwarding now. Uh, uh, not quite yet. Skirt. We start no. with just a little bit of background. Um, but like Kat said, it gets cleared up uh, a lot from here. So during the Civil War, uh, President Lincoln put Yosemite under federal protection. uh, And I think Kat touched on that in the last episode. Um, But after the war ended, there was renewed interest um, in finding out what was left to be discovered out west. Um, And so in the spring of 1867, Congress allocated money to send an expedition to determine what natural resources and areas that 
could be similar to Yosemite, um, what what was located uh, along the route of the transcontinental railroad that was being constructed at the time. So a guy named Dr. Ferdinand Hayden was recruited to join this expedition, and at the age of 38, uh, he was made the head of the U.S. Geological Survey. Oof. Yeah, out of boy. <laughs> um, and so over the next three years, from 1867 to 1870, Hayden and his team uh, embarked upon several expeditions going out west, and they traveled through what is present-day Idaho, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and Montana. So they covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I bet it was cold. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Honestly, oh, gosh. yeah. I'm I complaining went... about camping on the beach in late summer. I can only imagine what they had to do. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. I went camping this summer in Colorado, and it got down to 43 degrees, yeah. and I was on the ground. It that was... was in June or July? Yeah, it was in June. That's so crazy. I can only imagine. And, I mean, I still had one of those fancy, um, well, I had a tent that was pretty basic, but I had a fancy sleeping bag, and I was still really cold. So this is, I mean, 1867? Mm -hmm. That's He did not have that sleeping bag. He was probably <laughs> eating buffalo and then using its skin to stay warm. <laughs> exactly. Yep, like one should if you're going to kill a buffalo. Use the whole thing. Uh, so at the end of this expedition project, uh, Hayden wrote an official report on Yellowstone, specifically Yellowstone, to the United States Congress. And that report described everything that his team discovered, uh, and it even included photographs taken by William Henry Jackson. Um, so that's a that's a pretty big deal to be able to include photographs um, in, a, in a report in 1870 because... Um, Photographs are very compelling, and people have right. never seen these places. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I bet it took a. It was a big deal to get a camera out there, and mm -hmm. to like, it was like back in the day when it was like you get one shot, no one smile, everyone's family's lined up, like yeah. very like still face. Exactly. Yeah, that's wild, yeah. and I've never heard of this Hayden character before now. So that's yeah, that's mm -hmm. sad. Sorry, Ferdinand. You have a cool name. You have a great name, and and we are we're talking about you now. Um, so thanks for all you did. Uh, so on March first, eighteen seventy-two, President Ulysses S. Grant signed into law the act declaring the region of Yellowstone as the nation's first national park. Woo! Woo let's give it up for yeah. Yellowstone and Ulysses. Yeah, way to go. Um, so that was the first national park, and in some stuff that I read, it really wasn't even called the first a national park it was just like on the dl referred to as national park informally interesting so like i don't know what the deal was with like why people didn't want to you know put a name actually in my notes right now it just says this public park so yeah, yeah that that's a really good point yeah. um i mean it was so yosemite was owned by the state of california and Yellowstone was now um, a federal land, so it was a national park. But but yeah, why why not? You know, call a spade a spade. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and I also found it interesting that the Secretary of the Interior was taking care of it. Like I don't I don't technically know what the Secretary of the Interior <laughs> does. I'm not going to sit here and lie, but it doesn't sound right. Yeah. Like. Anybody but that. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people had a similar idea to you um, because with all this land and if there were going to be even more locations that were going to be 
owned by the federal government, um, there needed to be a separate entity to oversee that. And it wasn't a couple decades until that actually took place. But yeah, Kat, people, people had a very similar thought. So there was no agency that was a unified management system. Mm-hmm. I mean, there w- there weren't multiple parks at this point, but also they didn't even have the idea of like, oh, we're, we're going to need to take care of this in a, a manageable way at this point, which is, I mean, just so long ago. Right. <laughs> uh, but we did have Yellowstone as a national park. Mm-hmm. And in an effort to preserve Yellowstone, the U.S. Army actually established a fort in that area. I began to supervise the park. So there were ranger-like people, but not official rangers yet. Um, And they prevented poaching um, and did other miscellaneous things to uh, protect the park. Uh, And then this also took place in the second established national park, Mackinac National Park, which is an island um, at the very tip top of Michigan, the the mitten part of Michigan. Um, (laughs) That's not a national park anymore. It's a state park. uh, But... It was a national park for a bit of time. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it went backwards. They right. decided you don't matter as much. No, no I'm just I think it was, it was just um, more, uh, it, it was just easier for the state of Michigan to, to oversee it. Yeah, and they're so far apart. So, yeah, exactly. That's why I was I was like I had to double check and triple check this because I was like is that is that right like I feel like we're having realizations as we talk this we out. We definitely are. Yeah, because. Um, Hayden went to Utah, so many national parks, Wyoming national parks, Montana, right? like all these places. And then we just like kind of skip over to Michigan. So, which, you know, that's great. I've never been to Mackinac State Park, but um, I Googled it. It looked great. Um, Everyone should go. (laughs) Tell them to make it a national park again. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So now we're at around the 1870s. Um, So we're going to bring John Muir back into the picture, which I know is going to make Kat happy because she she likes him. Um, So he was all about some natural beauty, right? He spent a lot of time studying glaciers and other geological formations and phenomena um, and became like he, he impressed a lot of people who did this professionally and he just did it as a hobby. Um, so this guy became uh, became pretty pretty popular with all things um, nature study. If that yeah, wasn't worded yeah, stupidly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so he uh, became a pretty central figure in the debate over land use uh, and advocated on behalf of the land for preservation. Um, and he did this primarily through articles that he published um, in really popular periodicals. Um, and so in 1892, Muir founded the Sierra Club, uh, which is an organization that's dedicated to protecting the environment. Um, and it had regular newsletters, which just became another outlet uh, that Muir was able to use to uh, spread the word of these national parks. I feel like it really takes someone who is good at writing and likes writing in this time period to make that kind of big change. And mm-hmm. he definitely did. The Sierra Club is still like where it's at yeah. when it comes to environmentalism. Um, yeah. When we're, I'm in like several different, I don't know, organizations. And anytime we need like good, solid information, we go to the Sierra Club website. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, it's going to be nonpartisan, you know, that's going to be accurate. Um, And so he he left a legacy beyond just the national park system, for sure. That's great. I also feel like I keep saying the national parks, but what I mean is 
places that will become national parks. True. Yeah. So I'm not wrong, but if I'm putting myself in 1892, there are only three at this point, one of which will not be a national park for long. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Mackinac. So Muir has a ton of good quotes, too. I I haven't, like, pulled any up or anything, but there's one that's something along the lines of, like, uh, lands that are used are appreciated and protected. And we use that constantly at work because... You know, we have different areas um, around town or elsewhere that have really important um, plants or animals or ecosystems, and we want to protect them, so we kind of want to keep people out. And then we're like, no, we can't. We have to let people see it, and then they'll want to protect it. So, um, and I feel like we use that quote way too much, actually. But I mean, it's awesome. I like it. Yeah. Um, so John Muir is, he just keeps going strong. He has this newsletter and he has a Sierra club. Um, and he has a lot of people who, um, are supporting him in his endeavor to get these lands protected. So over the next couple of decades, uh, he and some others continue to express concerns that the sites of, of unique geography and, and amazing beauty weren't being adequately preserved. Uh, but Muir had the opportunity uh, to state his case directly to the president at the time, Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy Roo! Get it. Um, <laughs> who himself was an outdoor enthusiast. Uh, that's where the teddy bear came from, for uh-huh. those of you who didn't know. Uh, he was a hunter, which uh, you, you know you can have your own opinions on, um, but he was really into bears, um, and that's where the, the teddy bear originated. And he has that epic picture of him crossing a river on an elk. Yeah. I mean, the Roosevelts in general, I mean... Impressive. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, and like we will probably repeat over and over, we're definitely some... Uh, some there are some ugly parts to the Roosevelts um, as far as what they... Uh, their, their opinions towards um, certain people. Uh, but an impressive guy when it comes to nature... Um, and we thank him for his efforts in uh, caring about the land in the United States. And teddy bears. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for that contribution. Um, so Muir and Roosevelt uh, went on a camping trip together in Yosemite in the summer of 1903. Isn't that cute? I knew that in the past and I had forgotten about yeah. it. And I didn't come back across that in my research. But I yeah, that is cute. Awesome. Um, And then, three years later, Congress passed the Antiquities Act of 1906, which gave the president the authority to preserve federal lands by designating them as national monuments. Um, So not full-fledged parks yet, but monuments. Um, And before Roosevelt left office in 1909, he designated 18 locations as national monuments, five of which would later become national parks. So I feel like from from this point forward in the story, there are so many acts and um, bills and things like that that really um, established what we know and love as the national park system today. The Antiquities Act is really interesting because it resulted from concerns about prehistoric um, indigenous people's ruins and artifacts, actually. That Mm. was known as the Antiquities. So when we started um, preserving these areas as national parks, people were coming in and looting them. And, like, I... 
what was the hold on I have to find it there's a a pot hunter was the term people would come in and like try to find things to sell which so they had to establish something that was like a federal protection and that's what the antiquities did wow well I'm glad that that came to be yeah, and it also um, preserves it as an archaeological site, yeah. so it can be used um, yeah. for science and obviously still for everything else in the right way. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, it's a really important act. Um, once again, when you when you look it up, you see several different ways that it was used, but um, you know, ma- mainly just stopping the haphazard uh, digging around of all of these national parks, which is probably still hard to enforce, but I can only imagine it was really hard back then. Oh, for sure. (laughs) For sure. Um, But I really appreciate the effort, and you have to start somewhere. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Um, Well, I think this is a really good place for us to take a break. I was thinking the same thing. Oh, love it. Cool. On the same page. Okay, great. Well, we're going to get some water and uh, take a pause, and we'll be back soon. Hey, guys, we are back. We are. I hope you all had a good break. I had a great break. Nice. Okay, so we were talking about the Antiquities Act and all the really cool things that came along with that um, and protecting um, all the artifacts and being able to dedicate national monuments. So let's jump to 1912. You good with that? Yeah, I'm great. And by this time, there are eight official national parks that had been created by Congress Um, But a number of these areas that were national monuments hadn't been upgraded to the parks. Yeah. To a national park. But they were part of the Antiquities Act. Exactly. Ah. Yes. So there were lots of places that were part of the Antiquities Act that were made into the monuments. Congress was able to, quote unquote, upgrade them to a national park. But some of them were still made monuments. Gotcha. Cool. Um, So we meet a fellow named Stephen Mather. And this guy... I'm like so excited to talk about it. <laughs> he's he's just like a really cool dude. Um, like we you we'll talk about him. See, I'm still looking we'll for my started. words. Let's like, go. Just, let's so, go. So um, he's he's just a really really awesome guy. So listen up. So Stephen Mather was a millionaire businessman who was part of the Sierra Club. So he was familiar with John Muir and yeah. everything he was trying to do. Uh, And he got the National Park bug and did some traveling to these parks and monuments uh, between 1912 and 1914. But he was really upset by the poor condition of the parks. And that's what we just said. It must have been really difficult for people to actually uh, manage these parks at that point. Sure. Yeah. Understandably. Um, So, okay. Side note. He was, I, I couldn't find anything that like explicitly said his net worth, but he was a businessman, had... He did really, really well for himself, was for sure a millionaire. In 1913, $1 million was equal to $26 million today in 2020. So this guy was rolling. Yes, yes. Yeah. He he um, he was uh, football status. I just heard, yeah, all the stats last night of who's making what in the, in the NFL. So He's up there. Yeah, he could have been, um, you know, a, a great quarterback and made less money. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, you're right, yeah. Um, so he, he had lots of money, but we'll talk about how he did some really cool things with it. Uh, and I don't really know the details of what was wrong with these parks, um, but whatever it was – 
uh, Stephen was not happy about it. Yeah, I'm wondering what poor conditions meant. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, I would imagine litter, um, but I don't know oh. what else. I mean, probably um, maybe not easily navigable, um, not... He's like, Knock someone needs to do the landscaping over here. Sure. But like, there are not enough flowers in this I meadow. Mean, <laughs> if he had high standards, he went for it. Um, but I am, I'm really happy with, um, with his, his drive. The sand here is too hard to sleep oh on. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Stop. So whatever, whatever he had issues with, he decided he was going to do something about it. So he wrote a letter to Franklin Lane, who was the secretary of the interior at the time. And I feel like this is textbook example of writing a strongly worded letter because he apparently, this this bad review was so compelling um, that the secretary invited Mathers to Washington to meet and talk about the issue. And Mathers actually got a job offer to work Uh under Lane as the assistant secretary of the interior to be in charge of the parks. That's incredible. His one-star review got him a job. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he already had lots of clout with just the status and the money. Money. But um, but but still, I mean, he uh, wanted to uh, see a change. And whenever someone said, cool, I'll give you the opportunity to make that change, he said, challenge accepted. I love this. Yeah. So I already really like this yeah. guy, right? <laughs> And so from there, Mather hired a staff of two, and he paid their salaries out of his own pocket. What? Yeah. Like, I wonder how much they got paid. He was a man on a mission. Um, I actually read somewhere, but I didn't write enough, it down. Enough, enough. He but was yeah, a good guy. We exactly, like him. Exactly. Um, so out of his own pocket, he was paying these guys. So he hired a man named Horace Albright, who was a young legal assistant, um, to be his assistant so mathers was already the assistant secretary of the interior slash in charge of the parks and then horace albright was the assistant to the assistant secretary of the interior (laughs) (laughs) this is such a rich guy move (laughs) you're right um but uh mathers and albright actually made uh, a dream team so albright himself had been inspired years before through a personal interaction that he had with John Muir before John Muir's death. Um, so Horace and Stephen got together, brainstormed, had some really cool ideas for what they were going to do to improve these national parks. Um, and they also hired Robert Sterling Yard, who was an editor from the New York Herald, to be the publicist. So the three of them began a public relations and political lobbying campaign to build awareness of the parks and increase their size and number, um, as well as increase the visitors. So he raised funds from his wealthy friends to purchase new park lands, and he often purchased land himself and donated it to the federal government. That's sick. Isn't that so cool? <laughs> this land is his land. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Like, just so impressive, so selfless, and it just shows, like, how much he really cared about this because he used his own resources. I wish more people would do that Right? Today. I know. We've talked about this before. This, mm-hmm. is, this is a great use of your funds. A really great use. If you have money, please go protect something. Yeah, and think about how he did this over 100 years ago, and we are still talking about it and enjoying it to, like, millions of people get to benefit from this that's yeah that's a a legacy unlike 
Any other that I can think of. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really impressed. But it only gets better. What? Um, so Mather and his team joined forces uh, with the booming automotive industry to make the parks more accessible for the average American. Um, and then they also professionalized the Corps of Superintendents and the Rangers in the park. So he brought in Rangers, trained them, um, and basically just made the whole operation a lot more legit. Sorry, I still love him, but this is another rich guy move on both of those parts. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I love it. Um, but as long as you're doing something cool yes. with your wealth, have at it. I want to be able to drive there, and I want someone to take care of it for me. <laughs> um, so, also, I just have two side notes about Stephen Mather. First, I am just really impressed with the timing for him becoming a champion of the National Parks Movement, um, because John Muir died in 1914. R.I.P., and then Stephen Mather came into the picture right around then. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just really insane timing because who knows what could have happened to some of these places right. during a gap, you know? Like John Muir was going strong, really advocated to protect these lands. People agreed with him, um, but he was really the, the main figure that was uh, advocating for all of this. Um, and then, thankfully, Stephen Mather was there to pick up that torch. So it's just really interesting to think about like what could have happened to some of these places that are now national parks and how things could have gone downhill um, in a gap between these two guys if there would have been a gap. Yeah. I mean, we could have big box stores in the middle of the canyons. Right. Which would just be devastating. <laughs> so super glad that didn't happen. Yes. Um, second thing. Mather had a very personal attachment to the notion of establishing the National Park Service, but really just national parks and protected lands in general. Um, He suffered from depression, and he was very open about how spending time in the national parks had a really profound impact on his health. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. They say to have like a plant in your office because it'll help. But, um, But he made nature his office. That's, yeah, he he really, he did something with that depression. Exactly. So I think that's really cool. Obviously, depression um, and mental health was seen very, very differently in 1914. And I'm sure a lot of people weren't able to get some of the help that they needed uh, at that time. But I'm really glad that Mather was able to improve his mental health through enjoying Uh, These lands that were made for you and me. Yes, that's so sweet. (laughs) Yeah. He felt that the key to getting Congress to pass legislation to specifically set aside money for the parks. So um, up at this point, Congress had created a number of parks, um, but really hadn't dedicated any funds to the parks. Um, So he thought that the key to that was to increase the number of visitors. But without money to improve roads and infrastructure and accommodations like lodging and dining, it was nearly impossible to get more people into the parks. Well, that's yeah, that's true. I mean, there is only a, a certain part of the population that's going to appreciate nature quite the way we do. But if you could have nature with a side of lunch mm-hmm. or something else, then yeah, yeah. more people are... Which is totally understandable. Yeah, Especially with, like, kids or, you know, the elderly or something. you got to have somewhere to sit down and, like, regroup. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So he had a grand idea to invite 15 bigwigs, just important Americans, um, on a two-week camping trip 
in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And he called it the Mather Mountain Party. Oh my. <laughs> I love alliteration. I love it. The Mather Mountains. He just continues to impress me. Um, I just am, I just love this guy. Well, once again, going back to what John Muir said, you have to get people out there for them to like protect it and want to take care of it. So I think that um, both of these gentlemen had the right idea of like let's let's make this as public as possible. Mm-hmm. Let's make this public land and not so much like let's hide this away because it's so beautiful, which right. is probably how they both got to where they are on our um, computer screen right now. Mm -hmm. And I I just can't be thankful enough for them. Um, So this Mather Mountain Party included prominent publishers, politicians, and businessmen. So some of his friends, um, as well as railroad builders. Uh, and, And Mather thought that to convince people to care about the national parks, they had to experience the parks. Which makes complete sense, and Kat uh, already said that. I mean, obviously, in the early 1900s, there was no internet, no Instagram, um, no... Yeah, (laughs) So it it was probably really challenging to get people to care about something that they not only hadn't seen in person, but hadn't seen a photo of. Right. I know. I was just thinking, like, do you think they had postcards? I'm not sure. Maybe. But, I mean, what we would what we would call today, like, a, a really crummy photo was back then a really high-quality picture. Well, that's true. But they, you know, they processed it differently. So it wasn't, like, pixelated. Yeah. Well, what I'm getting yeah, at is but- that, like, there were, there were only so many things that people could use to convince others about the beauty of some of these places right. just short of taking them there personally. Yeah, you can you can write a book, but that probably costs a lot of money too. Yeah. I just uh I I just we sh- we should all be very impressed with this idea that he had and he took it and ran with it and used a lot of his own resources. So on this trip, uh they spent the night. This is just like a little story within the story. Um, on this trip, they spent the night at a privately owned grove of big trees just outside <laughs> the boundary of the Sequoia National Park. And Mather was afraid that the trees might be cut down just one day, not like specifically by anyone at that moment. And so he bought the grove and oh donated it to the federal government. <laughs> I love it. I think it's What amazing. a baller. Right? That's so cool. <laughs> Um, oh my goodness. Yeah. I can only imagine. <laughs> I I want this. I'll just buy it. Oh man. This is this is the opposite of me never been having gone to a national park. This is like he's been to them and then he bought them. Just purchased them. <laughs> yes. He said, I like don't even want to take a chance that this could not be here in a hundred years. So I'm just gonna buy it. And aren't there like a million films done in there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, all you Star Wars fans, think about this. Think about this. If it weren't for Stephen Mather, there would be no... But I don't, I'm not a big Star Wars fan, but there would be no place to film those renowned scenes that took place in the Star Wars films. And Lord of the Rings. 
And I feel like we're talking to the same people. Yeah, I, I would agree. So, <laughs> Which is most people. So, yeah. Sit on that. <laughs> Everyone just take a moment. Okay, <laughs> we're going to have, we need to pause for John Muir because he died and we didn't even like celebrate that, but we'll do it in a later episode. Celebrate yes. his life, not celebrate the fact that he died. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and Jeez. yeah, just moment of silence. Okay, now we're good. Um, but yeah, so. What next? Does he do more? He really does. Um, So at this point, it's about like 1914, 1915. So we're getting really, really close to the official establishment of the national park system. But going back to money, congressmen just were not in the mood to allocate funds for a national park service. So Mather got a lot of people on board with creating a separate entity to oversee the parks. Um, And a lot of people were for it, but every bill that came through Congress to create a National Park Service died. And and people still didn't think that land needed funding. But he partnered with the Transcontinental Railroad to market the parks and monuments that people could get to by rail, which was a really smart move. Um, So a lot of people, and this this just also shows how optimistic Stephen Mather was, a lot of people didn't really like the idea of the Transcontinental Railroad profiting off of just the average person having only one way to see all these places because, you know, there weren't planes and roads. But Stephen Mather said, no, I'm going to capitalize off of this and partner with them for a marketing campaign that says you can go to all these really, really cool places through the Transcontinental Railroad. So that that was a really big partnership that he um, was able to create. Was that his occupation, was railroads? That seems to be a theme throughout here. It does. I don't know. I should know. I am upset that I don't. Cause... We'll start our next episode with whatever yeah. his occupation we'll, we'll was. Because, be, and also, I don't feel like anyone... Well, I mean, people are that creative, but he seems to be very creative when it comes to the railroads and the national parks, which right. is genius. Yeah, so I'm I'm curious as well. So we'll do some some more backtracking research on that and, and fill you in. Actually, this just really grinds my gears. Um, when Hawaii National Park was established, which is similar to Mackinac National Park, it's not a national park anymore. It's right. a state of Hawaii. But when Hawaii <laughs> National Park was established early in 1916, a senator explained, quote, it should not cost anything to run a volcano, end quote. So if you look at it just on that extremely basic level, yeah, it shouldn't cost anything to run a volcano. But when you're trying to get people to appreciate land and protect land and value land, then yeah, it's going to cost some resources to make sure that things run smoothly and that the land is actually valued and protected. It will excuse my naivete. Um <laughs> Hawaii was a national park before it was a state? Apparently. Interesting. Yeah. I know it's like a newer state, but I just didn't, I assumed that, you know, just like everything else, we just took it from somebody else. (laughs) Yeah, no, I didn't like really delve into this topic. I I wanted to, but try to stay on track. But yeah, Hawaii was Hawaii National Park and then became a state in the 50s. So uh, after... 
or so to to keep the ball rolling with creating a separate national park service newspapers ran glowing stories about the parks uh Letter writing campaigns were launched and school children were even encouraged to enter essay competitions about the parks. And National Geographic magazine even devoted an entire issue to America's scenic wonders, um, which is like interesting to think that that was impressive back then because that's like all they do now. <laughs> Yosemite is the cover right now. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, so, I mean, just, just funny to see how that theme became the... The, the main thing that National Geographic magazine does. Right. But um, Mather made sure every congressman got a copy of that National Geographic magazine. So smart. So smart. Dude's a genius. Um, and then finally, on August 5th, 1916, Congress passed an act to establish the National Park Service. And then 20 days later, on August 25th, it was signed by President Woodrow Wilson. Yes, and I mean snaps for that, snaps. right? Yeah, we have so a now. National we're, Park we're finally service. here. We've 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 made it to this point. Did it? <laughs> yeah. So um, that act was actually called the Organic Act of 1916, and there are multiple organic acts. And basically, anytime we take federal lands and protect them, um, they call it an organic act, or the way that we establish the way it's going to be managed or maintained. Um, but yeah, so this specific organic act, uh, created the National Park Service. And, um, I really love the quote that is in this act. Um, so thus established shall promote and regulate the use of the federal areas known as the national parks, monuments, and reservations here and after as specified by such means and measures as conform to the fundamental purpose of the said parks, monuments, and reservations, which purpose is to conserve the scenery and the natural and historic objects and the wildlife therein, and to provide for the enjoyment of the same in such a manner and by such means as they will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations love that it's so pretty yeah. i guess i could have cut that in half but everyone needs to know all of everyone that, needs to know all of that. it's yeah, just really precious once. yeah and i'm well first of all i'm just impressed with how people used to write back then because yeah, um, that true. was just so eloquent but especially that that second part um about it being preserved uh just for what it is and how amazing it is and the land and the scenes and the wildlife and specifically that you don't do anything to it because it needs to be the exact same in 100 years as it is today. I feel like when you bring in future generations or children or grandchildren into Mm -hmm. anything, people wake up. That's compelling. (laughs) Yeah, that is, um, that's some serious stuff. Uh, Well, that's really all I had for the creation of the National Parks Service Episode one, part two. Uh, Kat, did you have anything you wanted to add? Well, so there's a little bit more, but it's really, I mean, it's just act after act after act. And I'm not Mm. sure that we really need to get into all these acts. But in case you're listening um, and you want to look these up, after that, we have um, Executive Order 1933, which put all of the parks under the service. And then we have a Historic Sites Act, which declared um, a national national policy to preserve all of these. And then the Wilderness Act, 
which uh, Johnson actually established, and it instructed federal land management agencies, including the National Park Service, to manage wilderness. So it's just kind of repetitive from here, so I don't think we need to get into it. But um, And then, of course, we'll have a whole other episode that will probably dive into the Native American Graves Protection and Reparations Act. Right. I think that there will be plenty of opportunities um, through the numerous, numerous episodes that we will have um, over the course of time. And a lot of these acts and a lot of the um, rest of the history of the National Park Service between 1916 when it was created and now will just will just come up. And we can even do more episodes and talk more about it and have little short episodes um, to catch you up on maybe some of these specific acts and how they came to be. But here we have the National Park Service and we it just takes off from there. Yeah, I am so excited to pick our first park. Me too. We need to figure that out. We've been thinking about that for a long time. (laughs) It's going to be kind of important. Yeah, I agree. Um, But I have faith that we'll we'll choose a good park, and our listeners will tune in again to find out. Suspense. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Um, Okay, Kat. Well, do you have any other questions, comments, thoughts, philosophies, intuitions, or ambiguities? Wow, that's a lot. I do, but I'm not going to get into them right now because I feel like this is the podcast for listening and not for sleeping. So <laughs> thanks, Nick, Very for asking. Very kind of you. Very kind of you. Cool. Well, thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also follow us on Instagram at M-F-Y-A-M, made for you and me, podcast. Yay. Cool. Well, you have a wonderful rest of your day, night, evening, morning, whatever time you're listening to this. Thanks Um, so much. Yeah, and we will uh, see you soon. You're beautiful. (laughs) 